Welcome everyone to another episode of the Tearsheet Podcast, where we explore financial services together with an eye on technology, innovation, emerging models, and changing expectations. I'm Tearsheet Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. Actually, today I'll be your co-host. Joining me is Tearsheet reporter, Rabab Asim. Rabab has been doing a bang-up job recently covering the intersection of Gen Z and financial services. From her reporting on our site, to her contributions to our two seminal reports on the subject, which you can find at steezlife.co. That's S-T-E-E-Z-L-I-F-E dot C-O. And one place Gen Z diverges from generations that came before it is in investing. For example, research shows that younger folks invest for different reasons than previous generations. For Gen Z, it's not all about financial status. It's more about a better quality of life. Values also play a big role in investment decisions as Gen Z tends to put its money where its values are. Actually, there are a whole bunch of important topics here that require some understanding if you want to do a better job providing investment services and advice to Gen Z. And to do that, Rabab and I are joined by Dr. Julie O'Brien, Head of Behavioral Science at U.S. Bank, and Rob Hayworth, Senior Investment Strategist at U.S. Bank. We dig deeper, discussing recent research Dr. O'Brien authored that looks to better understand the investment needs and behaviors of Gen Z. It's an interesting conversation, and I'm glad you're joining us. Speaking of joining us, Tearsheet is hosting our first symposium on Gen Z and financial services. It's on March 7th in New York City at MasterCard's Tech Hub. It's an intimate group of financial services professionals really exploring what it means to build lovable financial products and services for Gen Z. You can find more information about it on our website. Just click on events and apply for a ticket. Here's our conversation with U.S. Bank's Dr. Julie O'Brien and Rob Hayworth. Great. We'll start with you, Julie. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, hey, I'm Julie. I'm the head of behavioral science for U.S. Bank, um, and I lead our in-house behavioral science practice. So we like to say that we help teams anytime humans are involved, which is uh, really anything you can think of. Um, but we do quite a lot of work with product design and experimentation and also sharing research and insights from the academic world. Um, that can better help us understand our customers and how to build experiences to really meet their needs. Awesome. Welcome to the show, Julie. Rob, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, thank you very much, Zach. I'm Rob Hayworth. I'm Senior Investment Strategist for U.S. Bank Wealth Management. My role is really to uh, build and design portfolios and advice for investors across the wealth spectrum uh, in our business. Welcome to you as well, Rob. Hi, Rob and Julie. Uh, maybe to establish a baseline and get the ball rolling, uh, both of you could talk to us about the recent research you have done and some of the high-level insights that you gained from it. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start there, Rabab. The, this is Rob. I'll, the, really, the way we looked at the research was we were really wanting to understand how uh, this new generation, Generation Z, uh, approached money and finances relative to their uh, to their peers, mm-hmm. and and really we see this generation is approaching wealth a little bit differently, thinking a lot more about how do they get to security and safety and and achieve their goals rather than really just looking at at financial levels. So it's it's been very interesting to see those differences and how they're. Uh, how they're being expressed as they as they start to enter this market. Yeah, and I think um, what really stood out to us as we you know looked at the the numbers of what what people told us is that investing is something that most people agree is important. Everybody knows that they should be doing this, mm-hmm. and a lot of people are very interested in you know figuring out how they can sort of optimize and and be smart about the future. 
Um, but following through on the actions today that are necessary to be successful with a long-term investment or a long-term really anything um, can be quite challenging. So we did see a lot of uh, what we would think of as an action intention gap where there is a strong sentiment and desire to invest and even you know a strong awareness of the importance. But um, then the concerns that you have day to day that come up right now that require money and um, you know, attention can can often be overpowering. And so this generation really has to figure out how do they um, deal with the things right now that are requiring attention and resources in a way that still allows them to reach those long-term goals. Got it. Um, I'd like to go back to um, what you said, Rob, and just double click on that a little bit about the difference between um, investing and, and financial behavior to attain security versus I guess, interest in a certain financial level. Can you talk a little bit about the nuance around that? What, what, is, what does security mean here? Yeah, I think uh, it's a great question. I think for prior generations and what we saw in the survey was for baby boomers, they really focused on financial security, right? A acquiring a sum of money to be able to maintain a lifestyle. And, and what we heard from Gen Z was really more around quality of life. Right. So, so it was a, mm. it was a minimum. It, and I think of that as a minimum threshold to be able to do the things you'd like to do and the quality you'd like to do them, which is, I, I think, a very different uh, approach to living, living life, right. As opposed to, to having to uh, reach a number, right. It, it, it's more around how do I want to feel and what are the things mm. I want to do and be able to do uh, very consistently. And it's, it's, I almost think of it as a very, focused way of, of living as opposed to uh, as opposed to some of the other survey results we saw. Certainly feels more in the moment. Um, and I guess that means the number, whatever the, their target um, savings or investment um, plan would hit is, is secondary, actually, to, like you said, the lifestyle that they're imagining and trying to build for themselves. That, yeah, I, I think that's that's very much true. I think they go hand in hand, right? And it, it may be that that the quality of life they desire is achievable at a different rate of return or a different level of wealth, uh, as opposed to just trying to reach a number for a number's sake. I also found this part about focusing on better quality of life very interesting. And maybe, Julie, you could answer this one. Why do you think that there is a difference between these generations? Why is it that Gen Z are more focused on this abstract or less tangible goal? But uh, as Rob said, it's more focused. So could you shed some light on that? Yeah, I think I think some of this is sort of a natural pattern of aging. So, you know, if you've reached the point where you are maybe retired or retiring and, you know, you probably already have a home, you probably already have like the basic quality of life things that you would want. And so the thing that is left that you still need is long-term, you know, security and, you know, stability. But I think when you're young, the idea of long-term stability is really hard to conceptualize. And what probably feels like it should come first is your house and these sort of like basic adult things that most people strive for. Um, and you're also looking, you know, you're looking back at your lifestyle in college or maybe like, right out of college where you probably didn't have a as nice quality of life. And so these sort of like short-term goals are going to be more salient because you don't have the perspective of a long lifespan that can help you, you know, think far into the future. 
Um, and you really haven't had some of those like major adult milestones yet. And so it kind of makes sense to me that this would be the focus because that that is sort of the natural focus of someone who is young. Um, and I think in the current climate, it might be just even more on people's minds because it's hard. It's hard to save up enough money for a house and the housing market is really unpredictable and, and challenging to get into. And so I think for this generation in particular, that may feel even more important to them, given the difficulty that it probably will be for them to actually achieve that. So really interesting answers. Just one more question, and maybe this one's for Rob. Do you think that there's, because that there is a difference between how Gen Z views their investment goals, uh, are banks reacting differently to this you know, gap between uh, the priorities? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I, I'm not sure I can, uh, I'm not sure I can speak for all banks. I think for us as investors, we've always, uh, for our customers and clients been focused on what they want to achieve. Um, but it is, it is meaning we're having to give that more thought and, and advisors are having to think through, uh, kind of the nuances of advice they, pr they would provide to this generation. So I, so I think, you know, the, the key, uh, as always in this business, is, is relationships and advice. Um, there's, there's nothing that uh, can necessarily go right off the shelf. And, and so I think they're having to have slightly different conversations with uh, this generation than they may have with, with prior generations or, or, and, or older generations. Yeah. And, and would that go as, so far as to impact uh, the, their portfolio uh, creation or security selection? Yeah, no, great question. I think it it can. I mean, we're we're certainly seeing in our and we saw this in our survey that that they're they're willing to make some trade offs for values, right? Which mm -hmm. is an interesting thing that we haven't seen as much in in this country, uh, in and in this industry uh, across across the spectrum. So I think there's there's some trade off there where we're having to think through something a little differently relative to their portfolio. Um, but that said, I, th I, th I think it, it's uh, the, the tools of investing haven't changed that much either, right? It, you know, stocks, bonds, differentiated strategies, um, right? All those are still normal. So we're, so we're seeing, uh, they're not seeing a tremendous change, except perhaps if, if they really want to see a, a slight difference in their portfolio construction. I'd like to go back to Julie, something you said, which was interesting, like these are, this is a young generation and, and as they mature, um, they will evolve like all generations have. So I guess, is there an expectation or, or how do you think about um, convergence? Meaning it, they have Gen Z shows that, you know, it has certain attributes that are different than other generations. But for example, you know, they skewed debt initially, right? And, and at least from the data we've seen, they're more open to debt. Um, as, as they age and they, and they have to, you know, make life work. Uh, do you, do you expect to see, or, or how do you think about sizing up, um, that convergence to, I guess, what other generations will look like as they, as they move into different stages in their lives? Yeah. I think the way that we think about it is we, we start with what is the most basic, you know, fundamental human path. So, um, one of the things that we know, and Rob kind of, uh, alluded to this is that, when you're young, it's really important to discover who you are as a person 
um, and then figure out how you can express your identity to the rest of the world. Um, and so some of the patterns that we see where younger investors are maybe more open to identity-based or value-based forms of investing, um, to me, really is a sign of their developmental life stage. So doing things that are really consistent with who you are and then figuring out how to express that outwardly is something that you do when you're young and you're looking to figure that out. And so it's sort of top of mind and it's something that can be very motivating for young people. Um, and as you get older, you're not trying to figure that out because you've done that already. And so, you know, you kind of like stick with the path that you know, because you're not in this exploration life stage. So that's sort of this basic human trajectory that we would expect, you know, every generation is going to have a similar basic human trajectory. Um, but we do know that there are circumstantial differences for this generation that are probably unique. So, you know, the very obvious things would be living through a pandemic um, and living through the housing market the way it is right now. And then, of, of course, social media. Um, and we do see some of this in our survey results as well, where, you know, everybody is exposed to social media. It's designed to be appealing and kind of addicting. Um, and so as a result, it influences our understanding of what's normal. Um, and that can be, you know, on the plus side, it can be getting exposed to different kinds of financial mm -hmm. expertise that maybe is beneficial. Uh, but it can also be all these opportunities to consume. And so you think about the influencer culture and this idea of sort of highlighting all of the things that you have tried out and bought and the new products that are really amazing and incredible. It's so accessible that the temptation to consume is just even more powerful. Um, and then on top of that, you have new types of products like payment, you know, extend pay and pay over time products that make it easier to take on debt to buy all of the things that you're exposed to. So those are things that are not, you know, unique to human developmental life course, but the circumstances that young people are coming of age within that will then, of course, shape the rest of their life. Great answer. And I'm glad you touched on social media. That's one of the things that really stuck out to me in your research as well. And I was wondering, even from our own coverage and the research that Tearsheet has done, we found out that that there is a gap between, you know, how much Gen Z is engaging with, uh, let's say, investment advice on social media and how much of that advice is available from banks on social media. So do you think, um, you know, from the learnings from your research that, for example, U.S. Bank could um, leverage what you found and fill in that gap? Do you think that banks have been successful at filling that gap so far and you know getting that right information on the on the point where Gen Z can reach it. Yeah, I mean I can offer my perspective and Rob of course chime in. I think, you know, the challenge is that social media is incredibly crowded and you know, we don't have control necessarily over what somebody is going to encounter or what someone's friends are encountering, which is then, you know, what they will encounter. I think we have a place in the conversation. And, you know, I think that's certainly something that we think about is how can we show up in the channels that people are interacting in? And, you know, of course, what, what we do have is trust and, and, and competence that comes with being a financial institution. And so we can offer a perspective that, has a level of credibility that may not come with, you know, other folks who are in that space. Um, but what we can't do is we can't influence what people are exposed to, you know, outside of our own institution. And, and I think that's, that's something that we have to think about is, you know, we're only one voice out of many, 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 many voices that 
that can be very powerful, um, you know, in comparison. How about you, Rob? How, how would you address that? How, how do you how do you work on aligning wealth managers and the advice layer that U.S. Bank gives with knowing that there are all these other sources out there um, on social media? Well, and, and for us, publication is is important, right? We publish uh, quite a bit. That's part of really part of my responsibility is to make sure we're providing advice and guidance uh, on our public platforms, not just social media, but really, really on our site. And I, and I think that's where we try and steer people. The, the challenge, I think we're seeing two challenges. Uh, challenge one is investment advice is tremendously personal. And that can be a very hard thing to approach with a broad platform, right? So, so more mm -hmm. often than not, it's, it's getting down into the, into the personal issues and providing tools for someone to either figure out for themselves or engage with someone to help them figure out what is the personal solution for them. So I think, I think that's a hard part. I think the second thing, and this came out in the survey and, and, and it has to be part of it, right? I, I think investors uh, in the last three years, much less the pandemic, if we go back four years now, as, as Julie highlighted, are, are being challenged by what should work, right? It, it, you know, if you, if you go back during the, you know, post-global financial crisis, pre-pandemic, it was a pursuit of income, right? We, we had zero interest rate policy and, and you, you kind of pursued income. And so people looked to equities to do that. As we got into the pandemic and, and through the pandemic, you know, 2022 was such an unusual year for investors where stocks and bonds uh, faltered, right? It, and we've had tremendous economic volatility. So I think there, we're seeing a lot of so much uncertainty and in, in almost investor fatigue just because there's, there's a lot of variability and volatility across the investment spectrum. And I think that also makes it hard as Julie pointed out, when they have so many advice providers and and what looks good last year doesn't necessarily work as well this year, didn't doesn't necessarily work as well the next year, right? You, 2022, uh, you didn't want to own technology stocks, right? They'd been darlings before that. 2023, you had to own the top seven technology stocks. And 2024, they're starting off faltering a little bit. You know, what does 2024 bring? I think it it makes for a, a, a challenge for them to, to find that, that right path, uh, which takes us back to, you know, going back to how do you, how do you build relationships and how do you get to that personal advice? How do you, how do you bring them in with, with, uh, to, to really get that advice? One, one of the things that we've noticed um, in our coverage at Tearsheet has, and we covered a lot of the robo advisors as from the early days as, as they've grown up, um, and one of the things that I found was interesting there is as they matured as companies and they're targeting this younger, younger set was that they realized that, you know, it wasn't about just automating everything. They actually needed real advice. They need to speak to real people. And more than that, they needed to help younger people get into the habits of actually saving before so they would have enough money to be able to invest at the end of the day. How does U.S. Bank think about marrying, if at all, um, like sort of the savings component, like the, the building the habits on, on, on the, the building piece of, of, of net worth and then deployment and the investing piece? Yeah, Julie, I'll start. I, I actually was um, part of the group that helped build out our first what we call automated investor solution. So it was it was interesting as we were working with with partners to kind of get this 
launched for us there were a couple of key things uh in in doing in 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 building that business one was was we had to be very specific in the advice they received and it had to be it had to be quality advice and two we had to bring that minimum way down so that people could get started the mm-hmm. the interesting thing i think as we as we saw it launch um is is that there the uh the wealth spectrum that desired that easy button was actually much broader than we anticipated. Mm. It, it wasn't just very small clients. Um, but we've been able to kind of push that down. And I think the, the key for us in that automated investor solution has been providing a variety of goals so that you can just get started um, at, a, at a lower minimum, right? At a much lower minimum. Uh, second thing that, that was really important for us, and this was a bit of a differentiator as we started, is, is we knew we had to line up people behind this solution. So that meant that from, from day one, uh, investors or potential investors had a number to call to get a hold of a real advisor to talk them through, was this the best solution for them? Did they need to do something else? What did they need? What, you know, where, where could they really fit right now? And, and many times they ended up in the solution, but, but that kind of personal guidance ended up being very, very important. Um, Julie, maybe you have some, some thoughts on kind of the, the encouraging kind of the hard part of in starting mm-hmm. as always is just starting, right? Put, putting aside just enough money to get started investing, but Julie, maybe yeah. I'll turn it to you there. Yeah, I think there's there's a few things that that we really try to think about. You know, one is um, this trade off between spending and saving, whether it's you know emergency savings or longer longer term savings or investing. Um, and we really try to support folks with that trade off. So we have a number of different ways that we do this. Sometimes it's through email campaigns. Sometimes it's through digital experiences. We have an experience in our app that allows you to identify the goals that you're saving for. And that can be a short-term goal or a long-term goal. Um, And then we try to help you get there. Um, And we try to educate our customers about the things that are likely to get in their way. So, you know, sometimes it's a financial thing, but sometimes it is a behavioral or a psychological thing. Um, And so we have a lot of content that we've produced to help folks think through, you know, how do I look at my own life and understand the barriers that are getting in the way? so that I can try to remove some of those barriers, um, as well as obviously helping them through the financial side of it. Um, And I think the other thing that we've really also embraced as a company is that we can't automate everything. And we know that. And I think, you know, COVID kind of taught us that too, that we've gone so far down, you know, as a society down this automated digital um, path, but the value of in-person and direct human interactions is not substitutable. It's incredibly meaningful and powerful. Um, and so we really have leaned into that and we've tried to work with, you know, all of our advisors and humans across the board um, to understand the, the power that they can have in those relationships. Um, and so, you know, from, from my team's perspective, we're really dedicated and focused to, of course, all of the digital and the, you know, content that we can create to help people think through their own experiences Um, But we also work with our humans who are there to build relationships with customers and understand them more deeply um, and learn how to do that at a more powerful, in a more powerful way than I think, you know, other organizations who who maybe have not leaned in quite as hard there. 
I'm glad both of you spoke about product. And I think one of my questions when I was looking at the research was, um, what was the motivation behind the research? So why, why did you want to look at Gen Z specifically? And now that you have the data, how would it impact some of the work that you're doing with products that are targeted to Gen Z? So if you could shed some light on that. You take the first uh, part, I'll take yeah. the second part. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, no, I, I think this is a, you know, as we thought about it and our, and our leadership really thought about this, right? It's a it's a changing and challenging environment, right? And we really wanted to understand more about this generation and what's influencing them as we as we look at what is going to be a tremendous transition of of wealth and responsibility from one generation to the next as the baby boomers move along and as Gen Gen Z comes up. And we really needed to understand uh, a lot more in our view. Yeah, and I you know, we're incredibly focused as a company on understanding our customers and then building the solutions that meet their needs. Um, and so this is, you know, one of the ways that we do this. There's, you know, many, many, many other things that we do like this where we're, you know, digging deep and, and trying to get closer to the challenges that customers have and the needs that they have so that we can build the right solutions. So I think to me, this is just one example of sort of an ongoing exercise of, of trying as hard as we can to always understand what those nuances are. Um, and of course, sometimes that shows up in a, you know, very obvious digital experience or in-person experience. And sometimes it's, you know, a more subtle thing that just helps us better understand who they are so that we can design better solutions for them. Great answers. And um, it's been a very great conversation talking about how U.S. bank approaches Gen Z, because oftentimes when we're looking at Gen Z, we find that we want to know more about what a bank thinks when they're talking about this uh, generation. So thank you for taking out the time. And it has been a lovely conversation. Zach, do you have anything to add? That's it. Thank you guys for joining us on the Tearsheet podcast. Thank, thank you. you so much. Take care. Okay.